Well, I do want to thank you again for your prayers. Uh, it's been uh, a hard last couple of weeks for me and my family, and I want to again thank you. I uh, could not have made it uh, without you. I would really thank you again. More cards and letters came in this week, um, and uh, I'm really, really grateful. Grateful for the chance to be back uh, to preach, to have a wonderful purpose in life, uh, and to know the gospel. And uh, we're going to celebrate the gospel throughout uh, Advent coming up. In next week is the beginning of uh, Advent, or otherwise popularly known as, as Christmas. And we, uh, we have about four Sundays together where we're going to be celebrating uh, the gifts that Jesus brings us. We're going to look next week at the gift of presence, uh, the following week, freedom, and then silence and hope. So those are going to be some subjects we're going to be exploring in, in the, the gifts that Jesus brings us uh, through Advent. And if you are new with us, I want to extend to you my thanks and uh, my hope that you will connect here as a, as a visitor. If you are calling Hawaii home, if Hawaii is just a, sh- a short-term stay for you, we hope that you will experience our aloha and our love. And uh, may God richly bless you as you hear his word uh, today. Uh, We've been going through a series called The Big Picture, and on the front of your worship folder, you'll see the major covenants of the Bible. One time I was preaching uh, during my seminary years, uh, and I preached on Jeremiah 7, and uh, the preacher uh, who who was regularly part of the church, the pastor, was listening in, and he had only one comment, which I was grateful for, uh, just one, and uh, he said, you know, whenever you preach, I want you to remember, there are pipes underneath that text you're preaching on. So underneath Jeremiah 7, there's a pipe going back to Genesis 1, and there's a pipe going forward to the book of Revelation chapter 22. Whenever you're in a Bible text, there's always there's these pipes going on underneath, underneath, and uh, that's one metaphor or picture of it. We've been trying to use the, the, the metaphor perhaps of, of beams of a building. Uh, there are beams holding up the, the roof here, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they're there. And uh, when you think about your Bible, there are, there's a structure to your Bible. And the structure of your Bible is described uh, in, those, um, in those covenants uh, that actually follow after the names of, of people. So you have Adam, you have Noah, uh, Abraham, Moses, David. And uh, we looked last week, Nathaniel covered uh, Jeremiah 31, the promise of, of, a, of a new heart that will be able to uh, be forgiven, forgiven and to, be, to, to do the law of God, uh, the promise of a new covenant. And today we're looking at the covenant that's in Christ. And parents, as you think about to train your children, uh, that's a wonderful way for your children to know the, how the Bible is put together, how these structures unfold. And of course, God is reclaiming us. God in the gospel in the in scriptures, God is is reclaiming us. He is redeeming His creation. We are uh, important to Him, and He has come in His in His Son to reclaim us. And uh, a key to that is restoring our the worship center of us, the that which is part of us that it needs to be uh, enamored with the attributes of God, the, the beauty of God. The, God needs to take over the center of our lives. Uh, recently I read about uh, some college students who were given an opportunity to go into an art museum. And uh, they were given the option of, if you want to uh, 
recall what you see there, you can take pictures. So they all got their, can their phones out and they started taking pictures. Uh, not all of them, but uh, some of them did. Now, the next day they were uh, quizzed on what they saw. And so uh, what happened was that this was actually trying to, they're, they're doing a study on these, these students, and what happened was that the students who spent time photographing the things on uh, exhibit at the art museum, this, those who spent time photographing actually couldn't recall the details as well as those who didn't have their cameras. Maybe you've had this experience where you took a lot of pictures on a trip and then you, only when you looked at the pictures again were you able to at least even remember uh, where you were. And uh, the, the, the doctor who put this, Dr. Linda, Linda uh, Henkel, put this together at Fairfield University, and she described the inability of students to recall the details of the object. She described it as photo-taking impairment effect. <laughs> and the good news, though, is that if you want to remember where you were and you want to remember the details, it helps to review the pictures. So, uh, but I, as I look at this, I, I think about myself in this text today, Luke chapter 22, Jesus describing the new covenant, the cup and the bread, the new covenant in his body and his blood, how central this is to be to, to, for the life of the church, how central this is to be to my, to my worship. And I have to say to you that I have a, a worship deficit disorder and that I am unable to recall, as I should, the details of my own redemption. I have an impairment effect. And the call to us is to deeply appreciate and to deeply adore our God for sending his Christ, deeply appreciating God's deep, unconditional love for us. You see, as I look at this text, and as you look at it there, it's provided for you there in the worship folder. Perhaps you have your Bible with you. Those are familiar words. Jesus took the cup, verse 17. He gave thanks. Take, uh, take and divide this among yourselves, for I tell you, uh, I will not, I will, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, verse 19, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I think many of you could, could say that from, from memory, uh, even without even, even uh, trying to memorize it. We're very familiar with it. But somewhere in those words is our full recovery as human beings. Jesus Christ is the height, the, the, the greatest revelation of God. It's the greatest point of the Bible where we are now able to see what God intends to do for our recovery. Our great need is to have God worshipped well. It's the greatest need you have. And our affections would be powerfully changed and we would enter into the wonder. We'd be able to see the beauty of God in his redemptive pursuit of you as, as his beloved. His grace, his love, his, his electing love has fallen upon you. And it is beautiful. One of the strangest things, some of you, I think, have seen this uh, in the, the famous art museum in Paris, the Louvre. A massive place. Please plan on spending about three days there. You probably won't see it all. But everybody wants to see the Mona Lisa. She's there. I don't know, 18 by 24 uh, picture or so. There she is. 
Uh, they tuck her away at night. She goes down below, and, the, she, and then she comes back up. She has her own room now. It's a big room. Other, other, other paintings are there. They're completely un, un, unseen by anybody. And there's the Mona Lisa, and there's hundreds of people. Hundreds of people are gathered, perhaps. Well, I don't know what time it is. Mid, it's 11 o'clock in Paris right now, so there's probably not many people there now. But she gets lots of attention. Probably the most uh, seen painting in the world, I would think. The strangest thing that happens there, though, is that people are taking selfies with the Mona Lisa. That's really weird. And so I took a picture of people taking selfies. Thinking, I have it. So Amaris and I were like, well, this is really strange. So I took a picture of them. This beautiful, beautiful picture, this intriguing picture, it can captivate you for, uh, for hours. Somehow the self is involved there. I have a self problem in my worship. Is that true? This may feel like a little bit of an ouch, but when it comes to social media, I read this uh, recently. They, th- this author said that, that social media is uh, uh, technologically, it functions like an augmented megaphone. It is a means of amplifying one's own perceived superiority to others. They, speaking of social media, and here's a quote, it is a technology-enhanced mirror reflecting a preoccupation with one's own image. Others' reaction to this image and a desire to update the image as frequently as possible. Ouch. You see, before the Mona Lisa, she can't just be by herself. I've got to be in the picture. In fact, it's better if I'm taking up more of the picture than her. Strange, isn't it? So before us is a, is a wonderful, wonderful passage. And I feel helpless today because I cannot make it the beauty of what Jesus is doing here. I can't make it real to you. I can exhort you. I can use scripture. But it is a work of God's spirit to, to move in you where you would have affection and love and see the beauty and grace that is being demonstrated here. In the big story of the Bible, it's vitally important that we understand that when Genesis 3 rolls around, it doesn't have to be there. Your Bible could be two chapters long. God does not have to give a promise of a Redeemer. It is vitally important that we get that, remind ourselves of that. In Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of a coming warrior who will do battle with Satan. He's going to crush Satan on the head and Satan will deal a, a wound to Christ's heel. One wound is far greater than the other. One will cause permanent change. And the other one will bring about a change that's permanent, but uh, it will be, it will, ultimately Christ will be the victor over Satan. It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. When you think in terms of worship, are you grasped? Does it, does it grip your heart that you do not have to be here? You are not um, earning this privilege. You, there was no bartering going on. You did not do a certain percent of the work, and then God saw you as meriting his attention. What we're doing in the Bible is we're watching God be the actor. God has writing himself in the script. And ultimately, in the end, he's going to take the stage in the sending of his son, in the, 
in the birth of Christ in this earth, on this earth, he's going to write himself into the drama, and he's going to take the most difficult, unlovely part of the, of the play. But he's going to also bring about the great joy for all those who are part of the drama. So this unfolding great drama, this picture we've been looking at, it didn't have to happen. God was not obligated to give us mercy. Vitally important that that, that, that is informing our worship. And there's an ominous, ominous beginning to Luke 22. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. Luke 22 begins what uh, has been described as the passion narrative. It is the time in which Christ enters into his final hour, described that way, where the will of religious sinners, irreligious sinners, uh, have their way with him. But before that, Jesus has a moment with his disciples, and he celebrates the, the, his final Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal was, was a commemorative feast, a celebration of God's deliverance of, of his people, Israel, out of Egypt. It's recorded for us in Exodus 12. The first meal was eaten rather hastily. They had lamb, um, they had unleavened bread, and they had bitter herbs. And so what we call the Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of everything that is portrayed in that Jewish Passover. God was passing over as they took the, the killed lamb, its blood, and they put that blood on the doorposts of their homes. Those who by faith believed that that would work, God passed over that house when the tenth plague of judgment came upon Egypt. Israel had been crying out for deliverance. Pharaoh had been increasing his his cruelty on Israel, and there was an increasing cry of God's people. They wanted to be delivered. And God ultimately comes and comes and presents to them the plan of escape. And the plan of escape will include the blood of a lamb. But God passes over those homes and does not inflict judgment upon them. And what is the tenth plague? The tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. And oh, does Egypt wail on the night that that plague was inflicted. Jesus presents himself as the Passover lamb. It is in his body and it is through his blood that God will pass over our sins. You all remember that it was Abraham who was required, spoken to by God, to give his son, Isaac. And he took his son up the mountain, and he was intending to fully obey God, believing that God could raise his son from the dead, but he convinced that he should obey God. And at the moment, Abraham had the knife over his son's head. God stops him and provides a ram in the thicket. What happens in the Bible is that in the end, 
No offering that people can give, no effort, religious or otherwise, can be satisfying to God. And ultimately, what God does not require of Abraham or others, he requires of himself. He gives his own first to be our Redeemer. So the new covenant is established in the body and the blood of Jesus. You see, ultimately, God does not pass over sins. He temporarily does that in the Old Testament, but the new covenant is enacted in the blood of Jesus because God does not pass over, the, over his son. He, the judgment falls on his son. And in this extraordinary gift, the gift of Christ's blood, the gift of Christ's body, we have an incredible gift. We see God's infinite generosity. We see an, uh, an offering that will be eternal, and his blood is ever efficacious for you. It is powerful even now. It's blood that's always able to cover us. And what we find in the extension of forgiveness of sins, we find this principle that ultimately someone has to take it, and God takes it. He, He takes our sin in order to forgive us. And God now owns us twice. He owns us as as creator, and now he owns us as redeemer. And God pays this this amazing price to, to own or possess what is already his. And what's beautiful about this is that we see the love of God expressed in taking care of the justice of God. That God doesn't overlook our sin, but he... Our sin is dealt with. And those two divine attributes, the justice of God and God's love, are not opposed to each other, but they are working together and they find and they merge together on the cross. In Christ crucified, we find a perfect encounter of God's holy love and his holy generosity toward us to give his son in order to meet his own justice. So as I said, I have a worship disorder. You have a worship disorder. And in this new covenant is our recovery as worshipers of the living God. We worship as those who have been uh, imputed the righteousness of of Christ that's been given to our account. We worship as those who our sin was imputed to Jesus. That's why he suffered spiritually on the cross. Isaiah 53 puts it this way, that he was bruised for our iniquities. Our salvation is worked through this concept called imputation. He was was bruised for our transgressions. Now in Luke's gospel, in... in, we have a description of the other cup as well as the other Gospels describe this, that Jesus then goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. We just had this beautiful picture of Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples, explaining the true meaning of Passover. It's a peaceful moment. Then Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane and we begin to see the, the true horror that he's going to experience. 
And in Luke chapter 22, we have verses 39 and following his prayer to the Father. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Gospels record that Jesus prayed that the cup would not have to be drunk. He prays that three times. Jesus is entering into his suffering. And he is aware of what will be required to bring salvation. That sin will need to be atoned for. And sin will need to be placed upon him as if it was his. During his trials, there are seven trials on the, on the night that Christ experienced uh, on this Thursday night going into his Good Friday, the day that he was crucified. There were seven various trials. Some were religious and some were secular, the Roman. Christ increasingly is quiet, if you notice that. He's increasingly one who says very little. He becomes representatively guilty. It's as if he is guilty. But we know that he's not. It is placed upon him. From the very beginning of his public ministry, he is associated with John the baptizer's ministry, who was calling Israel to repentance. Remember that in, in John chapter 3, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, we have Jesus joining the thousands who were part of John's ministry. And when Jesus is baptized, and we hear the Father's voice, and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well, what? Pleased. Why is the Father pleased at that moment? His Son is associating with sinners. And this pleased the Father. This, un, th this is a revelation of the Father's love for us. He wants sinners to have a representative who will work who will be efficacious, who will work for them. His atonement will bring them salvation. And now, in the final hours of Jesus, his life on this earth, we find the full weight of what it means to represent sinners falling upon him. And he cries out, and it's described in the metaphor of a cup. The cup comes to us from the Old Testament about 15 different times. The cup is described in the Old Testament. The cup is usually associated with God's wrath. God is talking to Jerusalem in Isaiah 51. And he's describing the coming Babylonian uh, dominion over Jerusalem. And he's describing it as this just judgment that would come. And he calls to Jerusalem in Isaiah 51, 17. He says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the land of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You, ha you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Double calamities have come upon you, ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? 
Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. The wrath of God is described as the drinking of a cup that makes one stagger. And in John's gospel, we have a description of Jesus knowing that all was finished on the cross, realizing that he had accomplished salvation. He cries out, I thirst. And a a jar full of sour wine stood there, and they took a sponge and full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he, he drank of that cup. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John wants to see that, we, that Jesus really did drink the cup for us. And what we see in extraordinary ways, we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working to bring the Son to this earth and to make sure he accomplished salvation. We see the Son revealing the Father's love, that God so loved the world that he sent And this is the reason why he sent his son to drink the cup. The son would not be passed over, but the judgment would fall on him. What was deserving for sinners to drink, he would drink. And releasing sinners from the just condemnation of God's law. Are you sensing some fuel for worship here? Are you sensing some, some resources to, to, to awaken you to, to some affection for God, to have renewal of your heart? These are the kinds of things we are to think about that, has, that Christ has done for us willingly and lovingly and cries out, it is finished delighting in the cup, delighting in the bread. I want you to remember this. It really is true. I've overcome, and I am the victor. Jesus, on the cross, was overwhelmed, alone, alienated, stuck in no man's land, neither on this earth nor in heaven. No one to comfort him, suspended, a man of sorrows. He was cut off, abandoned. What do the disciples get? They get grace and peace. They get the joy of the fruits of all that he accomplishes. So do we. It's a cup of blessing that we get. And Jesus already anticipates when he speaks to the disciples that I will not take of the, of the cup or the vine or wine. I will not eat of the bread until, until the kingdom comes, meaning that there's going to be a day of rejoicing and, and, and rich fellowship in the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of the world when the new heavens and new earth come. Jesus is anticipating that and waiting for that, and he will enjoy it with us. A great, great joy is coming. And before the world, really, there are two cups. There is the cup of God's just judgment. And there is the cup of God's redemption. 
God in His grace is gathering the church. God in His grace has gathered us this morning. And we rejoice in the accomplished work of Jesus on our behalf. Someone once said that the the giving and receiving of love is the secret business of life. What What would it look like for us to understand this more clearly, how well we've been loved? What kind of grace would flow from us? What kind of person would we become if this became much more central to our our life? What would it be like for us to be on mission to share this love? What would it be like if this love were to take shape in our lives? Luciano Pavarotti, the famous uh, Italian tenor, he said this, he said, some, some singers want the audience to love them. I love the audience. That's different, isn't it? It's very, very different. That as I interact with my world, I'm looking for my, to the world to affirm me, to make me someone, to applaud me, to, to make something of me. And this singer said, no, I, I want to make something of them. I want to serve them with my gifts. I want to serve them this night. I want this to be important for them. That's the gospel. It's the self-giving love of God. See, what's revealed in our redemption is this. Is God is merciful. God is loving. God is deeply merciful. God is deeply loving. God is deeply generous. And this shows us what it's like for him to love us. In Isaiah 51, which I read just previously, I really didn't give you the whole story of Isaiah 51. Because God comforts his people later in that same chapter. He says this, Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what the sovereign Lord says, your God, who defends his people. Oh, listen to this. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. You see, only God drinks that. In the end, the Bible, all the covenants, the commands that God gives individuals, people, from Adam and Eve to Moses and all those commands, all the the exhortations, all the oughts and shoulds, all that's supposed to happen, in the end, not a single human being can do it. None. And what God requires... Of us, he must do himself. And so, in him and through him, by him, for him, is all the glory. He has accomplished our salvation. Recently, I read these words. An ideal community of faith, whether it be a formal institution or an informal gathering, is one in which the giving of grace to others in the community is the prominent feature. The giving of grace to others is the prominent feature of the community. If we could so understand our salvation, so appreciate it, I believe that the giving of grace to others 
will be the prominent feature of his church here at Trinity. What a remarkable, remarkable thing that would be. In heaven today, Revelation 5.9 is underway. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and with your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, 7, for, 7 through 9, For none of us lives to him, for himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. God has sought you out. God has paid the ransom for you. God wants you. God pursues you. God is sufficiently happy with all that his son has done for you. Enter into this blessed hope. Worship him well. Remember him well. Let's pray.